So excited to lead us into a new sermon series uh, today titled A New Covenant People. Um, And for this series, my aim really is to unpack the biblical concept of covenant, covenant. And so that is really how, how God pursues us with a covenantal love. And in light of that, how we as the church are called to be a new covenant people transformed by his love. So for today, for this week, week one, I want to spend today unpacking the biblical idea of covenant, looking at a couple of the covenants that God makes with his people. So Abraham, David, and others. And we really just wanted to spend time this morning just standing in awe at who God is and how he has pursued us in this way, how he has been faithful to us. Uh, And and I really even want today's sermon to end in a place of worship. So that's for today. And then for next week, uh, we too want to get a little more specific and look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. So the law versus the law of grace, okay? And how, really how because of sin, we all have a natural tendency to live under the old system as opposed to the new covenant. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit more, get into the nuts and bolts of that next week. Um, But uh, before we dive in this morning, I want to read a quick uh, scripture and pray for us. So this is Jeremiah 31. We'll have this on the screen, just two quick verses, and then we can dive in. The Lord is speaking to his prophet, to Jeremiah, and he says this, On behalf of his people, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O Israel. And so, Father, we just come to you now. Pray that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just minister to us. Father, I pray that we would see the beauty of your covenant and how you, you have chosen to pursue us in this specific way. Lord, we are your children if we placed our faith in you. And so I pray that we would just, throughout the sermon here, as we look at how you've pursued us, how you've uh, decreed to, to make your truth known to us, how you brought salvation to your people, Lord, may we just stand in awe and be in a place of worship this morning. So would you do that now? Come, Lord, just do that in our hearts. We invite you in. This is all for your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, You know, on my wedding day, my dad read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a famous theologian and pastor in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And so he worked aggressively to fight against the Nazi uh, regime. He was was ultimately martyred for this just before the end of the war. Um, But he worked this tirelessly at this all during the Nazi Occupation. He was a prolific pastor, writer, theologian, and honestly, most seminaries today study uh, Bonhoeffer's work. So, Life Together is his famous book on Christian community, and I've read that a couple times. It's a great work. So, this is just an incredible man of God who did great things for the kingdom. And I wanted to share a quote today about marriage that Bonhoeffer says that my dad read at me and Julie's uh, wedding on our wedding day. So, Bonhoeffer says this about marriage. He says, marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance, through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your own love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you're placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is an office, a status. Right, so he's he's elevating the calling of marriage 
And he's talking about the important role that it plays in society and how it's so much more than just a personal thing, right? It's a communal thing. And then he says this. He closes with this. Listen to this. He says, it's not your love that sustains the marriage. It is the marriage that sustains the love. Not your love that sustains the marriage. It's the marriage that sustains the love. And I think we might initially hear that and think, man, that sounds a little cold, right? The fact that love is sustained by something other than, other than the feeling of love, that might be a little hard for us to hear. But I think the reason that that's actually offensive to us is because we primarily view love as a feeling, not as an action or a decision. Right? It doesn't really sit well with a, a generation raised on Disney fairy tale love that has a tendency to over-exaggerate the emotional part and the feeling aspect of love, which is good, but maybe a little over-exaggerated. But it's precisely because feelings are fickle and can change in an instant that Bonhoeffer calls us to build our relationships on something that is far more stable and enduring. Bonhoeffer instead calls us to build our relationships on the concept of covenant. Covenant. And what Bonhoeffer is actually doing is presenting to us the biblical picture of covenant. And I use the example of marriage because I think it just... It so typifies the covenantal, intentional, action-oriented, get-up-off-your-butt-and-love-the-other-person type of love that we see all throughout the Scripture. Man, so different than a contractual type of love where if one party fails to uphold their end of the bargain or if somebody makes a mistake, then the whole thing falls apart, right? No, covenant says, I'm going to put your good above my own, I'm going to intentionally pursue you. I'm going to be faithful to you even if you mess up, even if you let me down, knowing that as I do this, as I put your good above my own, I myself discover goodness, life, and the joy that comes from selfless love. And furthermore, our relationship is going to flourish as we do this. And the reason that we experience joy in life as we faithfully pursue others is because this is how God has loved us. This is how he operates, right? First John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. And being made in His image, this is how we were created to operate and to find joy and to find life. This is how we were made to flourish. And so, for today, before we go any further, I actually want to introduce us to a statement that is going to really kind of act as our guide as we move through and look at some of these different biblical covenants. And the statement is this, so we're going to have this on the screen for you. Statement is this. God uses covenants in the Bible as the means by which his promises are revealed and his redemption is realized. Again, covenants are there in the Bible as the means by which God's promises are revealed and his redemption is realized. And so we'll take this statement and we're going to insert it into all the different contexts of covenant that we're going to be looking at today. And I think that as we do this, it will just show us uh, how God reveals His promises, but how He also moves His people closer and closer in salvation and towards His plan of redemption for humanity. And what I love is that as we see the Lord doing this work of covenantally pursuing His people, it doesn't just stop with Him, right? It continues on. It, it begins to manifest itself in us as we are transformed, as we become more like Jesus. And so we'll actually see that a little bit later on today in our last example of how that occurs. So here we go. 
Uh, let's get moving. Let's dive in. We've got a lot to get through. So Genesis 15, y'all can turn there. Genesis chapter 15, beginning of your Bible. And as you're turning there, just a quick reminder as to kind of where we're at right now in the biblical story. So God has created the world in the beginning of Genesis. Man sins, and so death and sin enter the world. But the Lord doesn't just leave us, right? He, uh, he, he loves his creation, so he comes up with a plan to redeem those who would trust him and put their faith in him. And in a lot of ways, the plan is really begun to, it's really begins to be set into motion here in Genesis 15 with Abraham. And so what we see here in Genesis 15 is known as the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, a little bit of background in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham, uh, you're just this pagan, idol-worshiping person. Uh, but, man, I want to bless you. I want to call you. I want to I give you a home. I want to give you offspring. I want to bless the world through that offspring, he says, if you follow me and if you trust in me. So this is the call in Abraham's life. We're not sure exactly what this calling and what this blessing is going to look like yet. But he says, Hey, Abraham, follow me. And Abraham does just that. He follows Yahweh. So then in Genesis 15, we see the Lord now, now ratifying this covenant to bless Abraham through, through this way. And so he inaugurates this covenant through a pretty strange ritual uh, that would have been very common back in what's known as the ancient Near East. So this kind of time and space and history. And so here's the ritual that was common. So what you would do when you're going to ratify a covenant back in the day is you would take animal sacrifices, uh, you would cut them in half, kind of gross, and you would actually lay them out so that they make a path, right? And so you make a path with these animal carcasses, and then everybody who is entering into the agreement together would come, um, and they would all walk through this path of animals on either side, okay? And so this is basically their version of signing on the dotted line, and what it really is conveying is, hey, if any of us fail to uphold our end of the bargain, our end of the covenant, then may what we've done to these animals here happen to us. So it was, this is very serious. If you're selling land, if you're marrying your children off or something like that, uh, leaving an inheritance for somebody, this is the kind of ritual that they would do. And so this is the ritual that Abraham and the Lord covenant into together uh, here in Genesis 15 in order to establish the covenant. But what I love about this passage here is that here we see a slight difference in how the ritual is normally carried out. So let's dive in. We'll look at it. Uh, verses 9 to 11 first. We're not going to read these, but we basically see Abraham preparing for the ritual. So he's cutting uh, the animals. He's laying everything out, getting it all ready. And then Genesis 12, uh, sorry, Genesis 15, verse 12 says this. Everything's ready. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. So one of the things that we see here is this is actually a supernatural sleep that the Lord has put Abraham into. So they're about to enter this covenant, and the Lord just puts Abraham to sleep. This is totally random. Doesn't make sense, right? This would be like you're about to go close on the sale of your house. You're in the title office. The lawyer's there. Everybody's present. You're about to sign the papers, and all of a sudden you're just taken and escorted out of the room. And you're kind of like, what, what, what are we doing? What's happening? I thought we were about to do this thing. The situation doesn't make sense. So just, just know that as we continue. Um, 13 to 16, not going to get into this. This is basically the Lord prophesying over some things that are going to happen to the nation of Israel. Um, so check that out in your own time, but we're going to pick it up in verse 17. And here's what the Lord does. Remember, Abraham is asleep, or if he's not still asleep, he's kind of off to the side just watching. 
Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the sacrifices. So what we see here, this is a, this is a physical manifestation of the presence of God. And so God is now coming. Remember, Abraham's off to the side. God is passing through. He, he's ratifying the covenant. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. It's a lot of ites, right? A lot of different people groups. But the covenant is official. It is ratified, and so the blessings, particularly of the land, to Abraham and his offspring are now guaranteed. It's a done deal. So why is it that we're looking at this weird ritual with dead animals and Abraham sleeping off the side? What, what does this have to do with God's covenantal love for us? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the way that, the way that Yahweh initiates this covenant through this ritual in Genesis 15 is actually different from how it was normally done, right? So again, in the ancient Near East, in this time in history, all parties responsible for, for bearing the burden of upholding the covenant, but also sharing in its blessings, would collectively, they would all walk the path together, right? But not so here. In this instant, instance, it's just the Lord entering into the covenant while Abraham sleeps. This is significant. Because what we see here is the Lord taking on the burden of upholding the covenant so that if the covenant fails, it's on Yahweh, not Abraham. Right? It's up to God now to make this thing come to pass. And yet, the Lord still promises blessings for Abraham, even though Abraham is technically not bound to the agreement in the way that the Lord is. So, Grace Hill, don't miss this. Here's what we see. Right off the bat, in the first major move of God, of initiating the redemptive process, bringing salvation to the world, to his people, God takes the burden of fulfilling the covenant upon his own shoulders, and he tells Abraham that he gets to reap the benefit of the blessing, the land, the offspring, the nations being blessed. And he says, man, Abraham, just trust me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the work. Sit in awe and watch me as I do it on your behalf. It's awesome. There's a, a Hebrew word that I love that I think Alan introduced about a year ago with our Ruth series. And the word is, uh, the Hebrew word, hesed. And basically what it means is faithful, loyal love. Um, I'll mention that word a few more times throughout the series. Uh, but here in Genesis 15, we see the hesed of Yahweh. As he shoulders the burden of fulfilling this covenant, Man, as we just sit back and as we watch, as Abraham trusts him, as he reaps the benefit, even though Abraham didn't deserve it, and neither do we, the Lord just did this work. And so remember our phrase, our guiding phrase that we said in the beginning, that was that God uses covenants in the Bible as the means by which his promises are revealed and his redemption is realized, right? So, so the promise is made to Abraham, that the Lord would bless the nations through him, and then redemption is revealed in how Yahweh has now taken an intentional covenantal step towards that promise, giving Abraham an offspring of, uh, he, promising Abraham offspring, a home, blessing to the nations, right? We are move, moving 
one step closer to salvation. God is bringing Abraham into this work that he's doing to redeem mankind and to reconcile humanity back to himself. So we see promises revealed and redemption realized in some measure through the covenantal ministry that God had for Abraham. You can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so this is going to be our second covenant that we're going to be looking at today. And this is going to be actually made to King, uh, to King David. King David. And so a little bit of background. This is about, about a thousand years later after the time of Abraham. So we're a lot further down in kind of biblical history. And so quick recap, right? Abraham has offspring, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They all end up in G- Egypt. Um, and their offspring, un- even though they're, they're slaves, the offspring begins uh, to multiply. Just as the Lord said, right, they begin to multiply into a great nation, the nation of Israel. But they're in captivity, they're slaves. So, so the Lord raises up Moses to draw them out of their captivity and eventually leads them into the promised land. So they're, they finally get there after much toil and wandering the desert. They're in the promised land. Things start off initially pretty good, but pretty quickly within like, like one generation, the Israelites forget the Lord. They begin worshiping other gods. And so things begin to deteriorate quickly because of their lack of faith, but the Lord remains faithful to his covenant people. So eventually a man named David uh, enters the picture and through much toil and struggle and warring, difficulty, he, he becomes the king of Israel. And because of David's faith, though he himself, David, is far from perfect, because of his faith, the Lord brings about peace in the kingdom. And so we're going to pick it up here. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read one to, verses 1 to 7 for us. All right, things are now at peace. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and the Lord said, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what's going on here? So the kingdom is at rest. David realizes, man, I'm living in these swanky digs in this nice place. And the Ark of the Covenant, a.k.a. the presence of God, is in a tent. So this is not okay. Nathan, man, we got to get together. we got to fix this. Nathan the prophet's like, okay, sounds good to me, David. But then later that night, Nathan is sleeping, and he's woken up by the Lord. And the Lord says to Nathan, he says, hey, Nathan, man, I appreciate the thought you and David have. It's really nice. But are you really going to build a structure that can house me? The Lord reminds Nathan that he hasn't needed a house to dwell in ever since rescuing his people from Egypt. And that he never even demanded. He never asked for a house to be built for himself. Now, eventually we do know that Solomon, David's son, would build the temple for God. But it's not like the temple was built to keep the Lord's head dry when it rained, right? No, this... It's so that Yahweh can come down, can condescend to meet with us, and so that we can experience the blessing of his presence, so that we can benefit from having him near to us. 
But yes, man, David's heart is in the right place, right? He wants to bless his Lord. He wants to honor God who's been faithful to him, who was his comfort when he was on the run for his life from King Saul, when he was hiding in caves and destitute. Man, David loves the Lord and he wants to bless the Lord. This is a good thing. But, and here's what I love, Grace Hill, but even in David's desire to bless the Lord for all that he's done, the Lord can't help but continue to pour out his blessing on David. Let's keep reading. So the Lord continues, and look at what the Lord says to Nathan in verse 8. We'll go 8 to 16. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, the Lord speaking here, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, I took you from the pasture, David, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies and before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, give them a home, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, so now focus on this. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so what I love is that God can't help but lavish his covenantal has said, his faithful love on his children, right? It's just in the nature of our creator to, to pour out his goodness on those who trust and follow him, who come to him with nothing but just open hands and willing hearts. So what we see here is the Lord making his covenant with David. In fact, it's called the Davidic covenant. And like Abraham, uh, like Abraham, Yahweh promises blessings and a home. But with David, he adds a few more things, right? So it's getting clear. Freedom and deliverance from enemies is one. A great name is another. But again, in verse 12, like Abraham, he promises offspring. But he goes a little more specific this time. Instead of offspring in general, he says, offspring, verse 12, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom, singular. And of this singular person, God says, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. He will be disciplined with the stripes of the sons of man so that this man will take on the burdens of people's sins. The father steadfast has said love will not depart from him. And because of this man, an everlasting kingdom will be established kingdom with no end. So the Lord is clearly talking about somebody specific, and it seems like this specific person who would come from David's line will be some sort of Messiah figure who takes on other sins and who ushers in his eternal kingdom. I love it. 
So let's take a second here. Let's go back to our guiding statement that we said in the beginning. So again, that's God uses covenants in the Bible as the means by which his promises are revealed and his redemption is realized. So right here, let's apply this to our context with David. So in this covenant, the Lord is bringing David uh, to David the promise of blessing, similar to Abraham. But more specifically, he's making the promise of an eternal kingdom, one that will not end, a kingdom, will God, a kingdom where God's children will dwell, where, where oppression and violence shall cease. Right? That's the, the promise that this covenant brings. And then redemption is further realized, as we see with greater clarity, the one by whom this kingdom will be put into place, a son from the line of David, loved by the Father, who would bear the sins of many, so that redemption might be realized to all who put their faith in him. Right? This is, this is Jesus we're talking about, who the Davidic covenant is foreshadowing. So again, like Abraham, we see promises revealed and redemption realized in measure through the covenantal ministry that God had for David. So we've seen how the Lord showed covenant love to Abraham and to David. And so for this last section, I actually want to do something a little different. I want to look at how a person in the Bible shows covenantal love to another person. And so y'all can turn with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, so go two, two books back from 2 Samuel. Joshua judges Ruth. And I think what we see here is just another great example of hesed, of loyal, faithful love. So a quick Quick bit of context for Ruth, because we're not going to read the whole story, obviously. So from the time of David, we're actually going back in time a few decades. So we're going back probably about 50 years before King David. And so the story opens with a man named Elimelech and Naomi. They are Jews. They live in Judah, which is the southern region of the nation of Israel. Uh, they have two sons. And basically what they're doing is they're heading to the region of Moab because there's a famine in the land. So Moab is a different country, just east of the Jordan. Um... And so they're going there to try and establish a livelihood and to provide for themselves because of this famine that is in Israel. So eventually they land there. Uh, their two sons eventually marry Moabite women. So this is Ruth, who the book is named after. Ruth and Orpah is the other daughter-in-law. And unfortunately, uh, right in the beginning of the book, the, the, book turn, the book takes a pretty sad turn. All of the men uh, die. First Elimelech dies, the father. And then the two sons pass away um, some, some years after that. And so this is, this is actually, we see in chapter 1, this is so distressing to Naomi, as one could imagine, that she actually changes her name to Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. Now, we, we might seem, that may, might seem kind of strange to us. As English speakers, we're like, man, that's, yeah, it's a really difficult circumstance, but why would you change your name? It's kind of, kind of strange. But to a Jewish person reading this who speaks Hebrew, this would actually be quite impactful because you see the Hebrew word for sweet or pleasant is Naom, right? So Naomi's name is a derivative of this word meaning sweet or pleasant. And so because of the pain and the suffering and the, just the difficult hand that she's been dealt, she confesses, I am no longer Naomi. I am Mara. I'm bitter. This is really hard. This is a dark place. So it's just Naomi, who's Jewish, and then her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And so Naomi 
now widowed, she actually catches wind that the famine in Israel is getting better. And so she says, you know what, I'm probably just going to return to my home, homeland and head back. I, I've heard that things are getting better there. And so she, she calls her daughter-in-laws in. She says, hey, Ruth, Orpah, look, man, y'all are Moabite. You are young. I'm old. I'm a widow. You have your whole life ahead of you. Y'all just need to go back to your families. Go marry young husbands. Your, your whole life is ahead of you. Leave me. There's no reason to stay with me. I'm just a liability. Go back to your homeland. And so Orpah, uh, through tears, Orpah actually takes her advice. Orpah returns home. And it's here that we're going to pick this up. So you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in verse 15. So again, she, Naomi, said to Ruth, See, look, your sister-in-law, Orpah, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So, like, this would make sense for Ruth to do this. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said, no more. So here, we see Ruth pledging herself to Naomi. She says, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. So she's, she's even pledging to follow after the Lord and to leave behind the false gods of Moab, the false gods of her former life. This is really significant. So she makes a covenant to Naomi and to the Lord. And then so after this, just to, just to kind of quickly move us and summarize the story, here's what happens. They eventually make it back to Judah. Naomi has a distant relative named Boaz uh, who owns a lot of property. He's wealthy. So Naomi and Ruth both start working in Boaz's fields. They get jobs. That's great. They're, they're just gleaning in the fields. But eventually Boaz uh, notices Ruth. He likes what he sees. And so through a whole turn of events, I'd encourage you just, again, to go read on your own time. It's great. Boaz and Ruth plan to get married. And so here in the beginning of chapter 4, we're going to move us here, we see a process where, this is not the marriage, but this is a process where Boaz legally um, brings Naomi and Ruth under his care and protection. It's called the kinsman redeemer, where you could redeem your kinsman kind of into your household, uh, under your care and protection. And so that's what he does for both Ruth, his future wife, and Naomi, his future mother-in-law. All right, so he brings them in. Again, this is not their wedding, but it's an important part in the story, and I want to read it, uh, just a quick excerpt for us. So chapter 4, verse 11, and it says this. So they just finished this legal process of redeeming Naomi and Ruth. Then all the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, We are witnesses today. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, make this woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So Rachel and Leah, these are the wives of Jacob, and from Rachel and Leah come the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is like a word of blessing. May you act worthily in Epaphrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman, by Ruth. All right, so notice, the elders are offering a word of blessing to Ruth. 
And the blessing involves her having a house, a lineage, an offspring, right? This sounds pretty familiar to, to what we just saw in, with Abraham and with David. So just keep your thumb there. So eventually Boaz and Ruth, they both, they do get married and things turn out pretty good. Great end of the story. Everybody ends up happily ever after. So how does this fit in with the sermon, right? How does, this, how does our guiding statement work in this context now with the covenant that Ruth pledges both to Naomi and to Yahweh? Because remember our statement, right? God uses covenants in the Bible as the means by which his promises are revealed and his redemption is realized. Promises revealed and redemption realized. So, so here's what I want us to see this morning with Ruth and with covenants. Through the covenant that Ruth made to Naomi, which, which honestly was a covenant made under pretty hopeless circumstances, right? These are two vulnerable women living in a patriarchal society. There is zero guarantee they'd made it, make it back home, the long journey back home safely. Zero guarantee they'd be able to find work and be able to provide for themselves. But despite all this, Ruth covenants herself to stay with Naomi and to be with her, but more importantly, to trust in and to follow Yahweh. And because of Ruth's faithfulness, we actually see a manifestation of God's promises and redemption, both in the present and in the future. Let me show you how, right? Because in the present, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they're all reconciled to one another. Uh, it's great. There's provision for the needs. It's amazing. But we also see a blessing and redemption in the future because of Ruth's covenant. How is that? Well, what we discover at the end of the book of Ruth, the very last verses, is that Boaz and Ruth have a child. And the child's name is Obed. And then one day Obed grows up and he has a child. And his child's name is Jesse. And then Jesse grows up and he has a child. And his son is named David. David goes on to be the king of Israel. And from David, just as we learned from our previous covenant, from David comes the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. And all this comes about, notice this, because a Moabite woman, a foreigner, an outsider, who trusted in the Lord and who covenanted before the Lord to be faithful, even when it was hard, right? All Ruth did was, she didn't do anything, she just brought open hands to the Lord and said, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you. That's it. So Ruth, as we discover, becomes the great-great-grandmother, the great-grandmother of King David, and after him, the great-great-great-many-times-over-grandmother of King Jesus, a Moabite woman, a foreigner. So through this covenant that she makes, we once again see the promise of blessing and of offspring. Remember the elders in verses 11 and 12, chapter 4? But we also see redemption realized and not just in their own lives in the present, but also again in the future. Through Ruth's faithfulness, we see redemption eventually being brought to the whole human race as her offspring, Jesus, would die on a cross and then be raised to life on the third day, promising forgiveness of sins and new life to all who put their faith and trust in Him. So amazing. I love this. We see that despite Naomi and Ruth's circumstances being painfully bitter, sweet indeed was the inheritance that the Lord had prepared for Naomi and for Ruth as they both, as Ruth especially, stepped out in faith and as she covenanted to trust in the Lord. 
And so we're going to end here. And next week, again, we'll continue uh, with this series and get really practical into the nuts and bolts of, of what it looks like to be a redeemed people and to live under the new covenant. We're going to talk really practically about this and how um, just living under this new covenant that Jesus established at the cross. But man, for today, my goal really is just to sit in worship, to stand in awe of how the Lord has covenant, covenantally pursued us with said, with loyal, faithful love. And so as we prepare to, to now segue back into worship with Matt and the band, I want to end our time by reading uh, two responses of praise, two responses of praise. The first is the praise-filled response of David as the Lord covenanted to bless him, Second Samuel. And then secondly, we want to look at the response of praise that the women gave to Naomi, the women there in the village, in light of how the Lord had blessed her and her offspring, and her future offspring. Let me read this for us. Maybe even as I read this, um, maybe close your eyes and just kind of enjoy, kind of just sit in David's response of praise. So this is chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7 again, verse 18. Then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord in light of all that God had done with his covenant and his promises. He said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord, my God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And then lastly, the the song of the women to Ruth and to Naomi in light of the blessing that he had poured out to her. So verses 14 to 17. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Right? Remember, she was bitter. Remember her situation. But the Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, her offspring. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more 
to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and he be- she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Lord, we just want to come to you this morning. And Father, we want to stand in awe of your faithful has said with which you have pursued us. Whether it's through Abraham or David or Ruth, or even just the ways that you've been faithful us through Christ in our own lives. Man, may we look all throughout Scripture, but again, even just our own life circumstances and see that how you have been faithful to us in various ways, how your, your goodness has marked our journey every step of the way. Would you give us eyes to see that? May it create in us a desire to worship you more, a desire to love you, a desire to, like Ruth, probably seeing the faithfulness of Naomi and following her God, it gave Ruth this desire to want to follow the Lord as well. So create that in us. May we reflect it to others. God, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And just be with us as we, uh, even next week, dive into what it looks like to be a new covenant people who are redeemed, who have new identities, who have a hope. And even when circumstances are difficult or hard or discouraging, Father, we know that we have you. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen.